You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. Bracken, John thought that Jordan Chippengama was on this call for real. He might be. I might be channeling him. How, that, that's so bizarre that you, you put Jordan Chippengama. Do you know he was my college training partner? This was just randomly assigned to me when I logged in, just like your name was. What? <laughs> that's wild. I mean, we, we literally did every workout together for three years. I was doing just a little bit of research on your collegiate history and all that stuff and um, saw you had taken second to him at, the, uh, at your conference meet in the 1500 and remembered you had talked about Jordan had been you, one, of your, one of your training partners or whatever in college and I don't know, thought it, <laughs> thought it would elicit some sort of response from you. Yeah, he was uh, he was an old friend. Uh, I've lost touch since, but I, Jordan Jordan was quite the character. We had talked about him a while back, like probably years ago, but I forget most of the stories you told about him. That's all right. So you've uh, you've done your uh, your digging on me. Um, uh, yeah, NA, NAU was was just a, a roller coaster of an experience. That uh, that yeah, that was a trip. Uh, I actually got cut from that team my first seven. (laughs) (laughs) Most people, when they say I ran at NAU, you think, you know, okay, you were the multi-time state champ in high school. You were, you know, all American at Foot Locker. You were heavily recruited by many people and you chose NAU. That's not exactly your journey there. Here's the thing. I was a four-time state champion in high school. Oh, in what, in what event? Um, I won the, the 3,200, uh, twice, the 1,600 once, and I was the cross country. Wow. But now where was this? This was in Arizona. And so if you're a distance runner in Arizona, NAU is, is the place to be. For me, that was just the, the one choice. I had to be there. And I just said to myself, you know, no matter what happens, I'm going to make this work. I'm either going to train with the best or I'm not going to. And so I, I tried to walk onto the team and I uh, was not successful for a long time. Now, like it, just because you're a state champion doesn't mean that you can, uh, you automatically have a spot on a top tier. I mean, it doesn't work that way, right? There's just a numbers. What had you run in high school? So I was, I was a 423 1600 meter runner and 927 in the 3200 and like that's a a person with those times really has no business uh trying to walk on to a program like NA. so like what's what's deceptive about the title of state champion is that there there are just so many of them right and in in Mm -hmm. arizona it's like every year there there are several different divisions and there's like the 1600 meter champion, the 3200 meter champion, the cross country champion. A lot of times those are different people. And then there are six or seven different state divisions. So every year, each state could be minting as many as 20 men and 20 women who all have this title of state champion. And so you have something on the order of a thousand state champions uh, created every year around the country. But 
how many spots are available on a top tier cross country roster each year? Like three, maybe four. Yeah. Foreign athletes will take up some of those spots. So really, a, like the top cross-country program in the country is only going to take one or two recruits. And NAU is as good as it gets. They, they have won the, the national cross-country championship three out of the last five years, and they were second the other two. So mm-hmm. yeah, there are no scrubs. I would I would say the herd thins a little bit in cross country though. You said you were a cross country state champ in high school. There's not quite as many of those. No, the the cross country championship is definitely the most distinguished title. Um, but still, it's the it's difficult to compare cross country athletes. Whereas um, you know, unless you go to Foot Locker, which I didn't, mm-hmm. and uh, and so what you really have is that thirty two that two mile. Yeah, more universal. You said. Uh, you said that you got denied like seven times to be on the uh, on the team. Uh, what do you what is, what is that? Is that accurate or is that just an exaggeration? No, that is not an exaggeration. That I, I literally was cut from the roster the first seven. Seasons. You how, seven seasons? How is that? You got to walk me through that because that's got to be interesting. Cross country, indoor, and outdoor track the first two years, and then cross country junior. I did not make. And it wasn't just like, we're going to keep you around and see if you can uh, really, you know, pull yourself up and develop yourself. It was like, you can't be here. Go away. And you didn't. Uh, No, I just refused to leave. I would actually, uh, I would wait outside the Sky Dome and Flagstaff uh, in the bushes and jump out of the bushes and run with him when they went out on the (laughs) <laughs> that's that's the that's the way I first saw you in our sport. You emerged out of the shrubbery to the start line. <laughs> this is this is a trend in your life, right? And I think when you just uh, when you really want to be a part of a group that bad, and you're you're really taking it seriously, and it, uh, you know, the the other guys. Uh, recognize your uh, your passion. They could they can only turn you away for so long, and uh, and so yeah. I I just trained myself. I, I coached myself through that first two and a half years uh, until I was fast enough to make the roster, and then I eventually ran four oh five and was the captain of the track team. Uh, I want to ask you this really quick. You you're you're literally speaking when you say that you would jump out of bushes and run with the team and the team would be like oh, it's freaking john again just hanging out or were you like one of the guys and this coach didn't accept you yet it was uh it was very much the coach uh okay i was uh yeah coach hines is an outstanding distance coach he is just the best in the business um but you know and a coach like that has to make some tough decisions Right there are so many of these kids who who just are are hell bent on running on the in these programs, and he has to say he has to say no a lot of times, and so he has to put his resources on the athletes that are going to they're most likely to contribute. I get that, and so he tried to run me off uh, for yeah, solidly two and a half years, and I I would just not leave. the The guys on the team were were mostly different, um, like. Uh, yeah, I was I was pretty close with a lot of them. Some of the older guys just dismissed me as as a wannabe runner, uh, and you know just didn't really give me the time of day. But that was fine. Uh, it worked out eventually. And yes, I I really would hide in the bushes because uh, if Coach Hines caught me, then then I would hear. So were you this 
confident in your course of action and positive the entire time or throughout these seven cuts did you did you waver in your resolve um there was one time where i i did hang up the spikes i uh it was yeah it was sophomore year after i had mono no no it was uh yeah it was it was okay it was uh it was freshman year uh, and I think uh, what happened was the the summer before freshman year, I lived in Yellowstone Park. And while I was up in Yellowstone, I would I would go for long runs between thirty and eighty miles out in the backcountry. Wait, say repeat that number. I would go for thirty to eighty mile long runs. <laughs> okay, casual. That qualifies as a long run. And I, I wasn't very intelligent about it in terms of nutrition. Like, I didn't understand anything about uh, ultra running nutrition back then. I just loved being outside. And that's just all I wanted to do on my days off was just be out in the backcountry and cover as much ground as I could. But I did a lot of damage to my legs, and I really lost a lot of my, my turnover and track speed. So when I got to NAU, I just couldn't hang and... It was very demoralizing. Uh, yeah, toward toward the end, I just said, I, "I'm going to stop. I'm going to focus on other things." And uh, you know, maybe this isn't for me. I'll just uh, take a break. I, I wouldn't even take a break. It was just like I'm I'm done. And that lasted about three months. And my legs came back. Uh, I started feeling good again. And and then I just wanted to run. Like I've, I've always loved running. And if I'm healthy enough to train, then I will. Uh, so, you know, I've, uh, in the few instances in the past 25 years of training that I've tried to quit, I just haven't been successful. Uh, that never works out. <laughs> well, I'm glad it didn't because there are very few stories of, of that many cuts. I got cut from two teams. And I had people around me like, why, why would you consider still going? Like, this is a definite answer. So seven, did you have support systems left or people just like, man, you are becoming the crazy person? Well, there was never a support system to begin with. And I think that was, that was helpful because that was just my baseline. I coached myself through high school as well. Um, really? Yeah. I, I you ran 927 self-coached as a teenager? Yes. Um, so <laughs> I, I never had a, a coach that I trusted. And this was a, a source of contention on my high school track team, uh, actually. Like, I, remember, I remember sophomore year, the head track coach pulled me aside because I, I refused to do workouts with the team in the afternoon. I would do my own thing in the morning. And, uh, and he said, uh, listen, John, what you're doing is very, very insulting to the, the coaching staff. Do you realize that by, uh, by not working out with the team, it's, it's sending the message that you know more than the coaches do? And it's basically like, okay, I do. And <laughs> I just, uh, I continued running alone in the mornings and uh, I, I read every piece of material that I could on distance running. Uh, like we couldn't afford books um, at the time, so I just sat in Barnes and Noble, and uh, like that's where all the good books are. You can't really like the, the ones in the library aren't just are terrible. 
but I would sit in the bookstores and I would read, read the books cover to cover, just sitting in the armchairs of Barnes and Noble. And then I'd put them back on the shelves. And so I educated myself in uh, training theory and set out my, my training plans and, and did my own thing. Who, who were your, your go-to authors and coaches at that time that laid the groundwork for your theory? The, the single biggest influence to this day has been Arthur Liddy. There's, okay. there's a book called Running the Liddyard Way that's just outstanding. And that's, that's been the, the gold standard for, for modern distance running training for the last 50 years. Like, I, I really don't think we've improved that much from, from Liddyard's training uh, there, there was a modern book that's uh, that elaborates on a lot of Lydiard's principles called uh, Healthy Intelligent Training. That was also excellent. I forget who the author is, um, but I would, I would highly recommend that book as well. You can easily find it. On- you know what I find a little ironic is that uh, you skirted around going to high school uh, practice and running with the team, and all you wanted to do in college was run with the team. It's uh, quite the polar opposite there, isn't it, John? Yeah, that was... Uh... I, I never thought about that. That was a, a strange transition. Yeah. Did um, in high school, like, where did this appeal of running come from? Then, I mean, to become a student of a sport like this at such a young age, what usually, you know, at a younger age, people are either running as punishment or they're running because they're not good at anything else, or they're running because somebody in their family ran. Like, when and how did that start for you? And then, I don't know, turn into becoming such a student. Is that a whole can of worms? Yeah, I, I actually started running when I was seven, and I, I was training semi-consistently until I was about 16, and I remember the, there was a distinctive moment uh, after sophomore year. Uh, I, was, I was working this terrible job, telesurveying, which I don't recommend, zero out of 10, just don't do that. Uh, but anyway, I was uh, I was working this telesurveying job with with my my buddy on the cross country team, and I I remember just making the deci- decision then that I was I was going to tar- start training harder than anyone else in the state. I I I actually said I think I'm going to win the state championship. I'm going to do it, and I, it was an audacious claim at the time. Because uh, I was nowhere, n- not even close to that caliber of athlete at the time. I remember in my my freshman year in high school, I broke 20 minutes at the the state meet in the 5K, and I was pretty. Uh, I was like, I was not that. I was not that talented. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I said it. I said I'm going to win the state championship, and I started running 100 miles a week, and I won the state championship. So it's just like, where did the it, running was just what I love to do. It was, uh, it's, I, I think running has served different purposes in, in different times of my life. Um, but it was, uh, it was the one thing where I felt like I had a level playing. It's like there was, there was not, you, you can't really, well, I, I should be careful. Um, it's, it's difficult to, to cheat at running. And it's like, it's fair. Uh, having, having a, a coach and having a lot of money, it's not really going to help you in the distance, right? I, what really appealed to me about it is that I didn't need anyone else. I didn't need a team. I didn't need money. Um, I could just, uh, wear a pair of running shoes down until the duct tape wouldn't mend the holes in them. And I was ruining my socks. 
uh, and mm. and just train harder than anyone else. And that's what I did. Your, your body held up to 100 mile weeks in high school? That wasn't a barrier for you, injury, even running through old beat up shoes? Uh, I really don't think the shoes were a problem. And, you know, all this faux science around running shoes is mm-hmm. nonsense. Uh, yeah, you can put 2,000 miles on a pair of running shoes. And I I collected these pairs of blown out running shoes and I hung them on my wall. When I, uh, I my bedroom wall was dead, dozens of pairs of destroyed, tattered running. Um, so yeah, at, at that time I was, I was extremely durable. I, that was, that is a kind of talent that people have. Like there, there are people who can roll off the couch and run close to a four minute mile, uh, like within their first year of training. And there are others who just have the durability to withstand sustained volume. And when I was younger, I was one of those. I, I did consistently run high mileage. Uh, I, I worked up to about 120 miles a week during the track. And I, wow. I also had Jim Walmsley to train with, who's the, the Western States record. Uh, In high school? Yes. He and I were high school training partners. That's incredible. We were, uh, he is, Jim is my oldest friend, actually. We're still close. Uh, I, I still go up to Flagstaff in Colorado to run with that's not something I knew about you. He, he's he's a he's an inspiration of mine. Uh, and I, why should that shock me? <laughs> that John Yatsko, of course, he's Jim Walmsley's oldest friend. <laughs> um, well, I said he's my oldest. I don't I don't know about. Maybe he's got more friends than I do. <laughs> I think maybe he does. <laughs> <laughs> so you you've alluded several times um, to the to the fact that it seems like your childhood was not an affluent one. And that running was was maybe the thing you grasped onto. To, to what extent is that true? Um, I I think that uh, that was a significant factor. Um, yeah. If if anything, uh, having a disadvantaged background has been a distinct advantage to me, ironically, because it just made me toughest. And it's like when you understand from an early age that uh, you you're you're in complete control of your destiny nobody's steering the ship you don't have like uh qualified mentors looking after you you figure things out and so i always had that attitude of i'm going to figure this out and i'm going to do it better than it so you've left little jim walmsley behind and (laughs) i mean your dust uh yeah i really to be fair, Jim left me in his dust because there, I, he was the one guy I could I could never catch. Um, I, we we were in different divisions, and he was in five A, I was in four A, and I was always a step behind. He was uh, he is one of those uh, exceptionally talented traditional sense, but he's also super durable. So yes, uh, he has that that magic combination. So yeah, there's that's that's the first instance where where I, it really hit home like wow talent is talent is real there is there is nothing i can do he was always a couple steps always a couple steps ahead of me what did that look like in training did you guys train cohesively or was it a battle um a little of both so we were both rogue distance runners um there were no we didn't go to the same high school but we we would train together out on out in the mountains around the Phoenix area and out on the canals. Every Sunday we would go out to 
a, a particular canal in North Phoenix. And we would meet at uh, like 5 a.m. and go for, for a long run, usually about like 16, 17 miles. And Jim would, uh, he would drop the hammer at like seven miles out and start running 540 pace. And <laughs> it was just like, oh man, here we go. And, uh, and we would just try to break each other. It's, uh, it, it, that's just how it went on our long runs. We would always progress it. Um, but still we were, uh, that's, that's what we both wanted. We wanted somebody, we wanted, uh, we wanted a guy who could push. And like, I think what impressed me most about Jim was he never missed a workout. Um, like there were others who, who came and went, there were, there were other guys who trained with us occasionally, but Jim was always there. It, he never he never made excuses. Like he never called in sick or just couldn't get out of bed that morning. He was never late. He was just there every time at 5 a.m. with that big goofy smile on. At 16 and 17 years old. Uh, yes, I was I was 17 and he was 16. We started. Uh, did that translate into when you were scrapping at making the the college team? Did you still train with him as you were working towards that? Um, no, because I was up in Flagstaff at the time. I'm a, I'm a year older than Jim. And, uh, and so I was on my own up in Flagstaff and Jim eventually went to the Air Force Academy. Uh, we, we kept in touch. Uh, we'd, we'd occasionally see each other at the races. Um, but we, we went our separate ways. Okay. So I want to, I want to hear now about this big glorifying moment it's attempt number seven or eight to make the make the squad and finally it happens what what did that look like how did that go down okay so my junior year i was i was really starting to turn the corner i had malaria over that summer before junior year and that had a naturally uh, that really knocked me out of the junior cross-country season Jeez. but i how'd you catch malaria I ran a humanitarian engineering project in northern Ghana, and while I was over there, I contracted malaria and had to be evacuated out. Oh, man. It's, that's not a pleasant experience, uh, but, you know, I got over it uh, eventually. Uh, my body recovered. And so th uh, things started coming together toward that fall of junior year. Uh, I remember one workout. I just jumped in with the team in, in December. We did 12 quarters, and then I ran away from the guys with a 53-quarter at the end. And that's, that's when I, I started thinking, okay, this might work. Tale as old as time, John. You get cut from a team, you catch malaria in Ghana, you come back with improved endurance and foot speed, and then you have your breakthrough. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I came out that season, and uh, I dropped 14 seconds on, on the mile in one race. and uh, I, <laughs> That's unheard of. From what to what? So like that, that 23 is technically a 425 mile, full mile. And then uh, my next race was 411. Wow. Uh, and so I I surpassed every guy on the, the distance running roster at the time. And I had the fastest 800 meter time on the, the squad that year. Um, and so I, I, I had to do a lot to get that jersey because Heinz was... I was uh, very hesitant to invest uh, in at that point. So you were you were able to race as like an unattached athlete and still do some of these high quality workouts with the team before they took you 
unofficially. Um, Is that what I'm understanding? Okay. So like that last quarter workout was an off season workout. Uh, okay. Which was not there. This was after cross country season. Got it. Uh, so I, I did do a lot of high quality workouts on my own. Uh, really, if you want to get sharp for the mile and, uh, and really get down close to that pace, what, uh, what really helped me were, were hundred meter strides in grass fields, hill bounding, and then, uh, just the traditional 20 by 400 workouts, 20 by 200 work. That was my bread and butter. So you were still doing your, your Lydiard style training then to some extent at that point, if you're talking hill bounding and things like that. Right. That is, that is the signature Lydiard workout. And it, that was a secret. Yes, that was, that was super. How, because a lot of people, I not, I think I am positive that the vast majority of people do not truly know what Lydiard training looks like. So I, I encourage everyone who's listening to go out and start reading up on him instead of just hearing like, oh, he's just all about tons of long, steady miles, because that's not it. But I do I do want to hear what a standard John Yatsko version of a Lydiard hill bounding workout would look like at that time. Okay, so hill bounding is not hill sprinting. There's a place for both in, in a designated hill phase, and I actually would alternate between them. Uh, but in a... So... There, there are two very important phases in the Lydiard program. There's, there's about a four-week... For me, I did a, a very specific four-week uh, hill workout phase followed by that gut-busting track workout. So in the hill phase, I would do two workouts a week. One would be hill bounding, one would be hill sprinting. And with the bounding, you're, you're going for vertical gain more so than forward progression. And you're just driving your your arms up and uh, getting this this good bounce as you're going up a very steep. Hill. So for me, that was a mountain in Tempe, Arizona, um, it, which is an extremely steep uh, little butte that's that has about 300 feet of gain. And so I would bound up that six times. Uh, you don't you don't need to do that much, and most people because it's it's a strenuous workout, even even bounding in a field. So I would do six or 10 bounding reps and just go for good form, good quality, good height. And people thought I was training for the high jump. Uh, but like, nope, I'm a miler. Would you, how would you describe that form? Would that be like an, like an over-exaggerated stride with a higher knee drive or would it look almost like a like a warm-up drill on a track? Like, how would you describe that to the listeners? It looks like a warm-up drill on the track, and bounding is uh, a warm-up that, that I would do on the track. I would I would do 100-meter bounds in the football field. Uh, you can easily look up what that is. But when you're doing hill bounding, you're not going for that, that forward uh, progression. You're going for height, and you want hang time. So it's like you you spring up and then you kind of freeze in in position as long as you can with one knee up and one. That makes sense. I can wrap my head around that. Yeah. Okay. So I, I detracted from Kirk's line of questioning, which was getting to the breakthrough moment. So you got onto the team and Heinz was reluctant. Did you ever have like a, a airing out where he's like, hey, my apologies. You did it. I didn't see it. Or was it just... Here's your jersey. Let's the, better be the last I hear about it. Um, there, there wasn't even that much of a station. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, um, 
I, I never got along well with Heinz. And I actually became the steeplechase coach at NAU later on uh, while he was still there. And there, there was, uh, it was just never a cordial work relationship. We just, uh, we just never read. That's interesting. So he reluctantly allowed you on the team and you reluctantly accepted or not so much. Um, yeah, I, it was extremely important to me to, to be a part of that team. There was nothing more important to me in life than getting that job. I, I still have it to this day. I haven't kept much, but, um, uh, I, I can't ever part with that any. Um, it was it was about being a part of that that team more so than uh, than having mm. something. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but it's just a really quick personal curiosity based on something you'd said, John. Uh, you'd you, you'd talked about doing these long like thirty to eighty mile runs on the weekends um, in Yellowstone. And then you now we're talking about shorter 200 meter repeats and 400 meter repeats and hill bounding. Did that change your philosophy at all? Is like more is better, or do you still uh, is that still ingrained in you like the high mileage uh, outlook? Um, so I, if we go back to the the Lydiard training, it, what you're suggesting is a false dichotomy. It's it's not one or the other. And yep. Lydiard used to train his 800 meter men to be competent marathon runners. And, and they were. Peter, Sme- Peter Snell could have run a competitive marathon had he the Olympic 800. Sure. And, and I could have as well. Uh, I, that I, was, uh, I, would still, I would still run about 90 miles a week through most of the, the year and then drop down to 50 miles. Okay. And so really, I would, I would keep that big mileage up for about 10 months a year and then maybe, maybe eight months a year and then just drop down and really focus on quality. That was a very good. Okay. That, that makes sense to me. We have this conversation a lot. In fact, Bracken and I did like a high mileage versus low mileage sort of episode um, a few weeks back. Did you ever have like, cause I think people struggle if they drop mileage sometimes, but you would intentionally drop mileage to focus on your speed. Did that ever mess with your psyche at all? Like as far as your fitness or you knew uh, like exactly that served the purpose it needed to at the time? Um, I knew that I had such a strong base under me that I wasn't going to lose that in a matter of a few months. And mm-hmm. it was when you, when you're really ready to focus on quality, you need the recovery. And I, I, it became very clear to me that I could not recover from the really high quality track workouts I, while I was still going for 20 mile long. So during the track season, I actually cut my long run. I, I know that that might be controversial, but uh, it worked for me. Speaking of track, there's this video out there. I'm sure you've seen it. It's on, I believe it's Flow Track. I'm not entirely sure, but it's an interview with you after an indoor mile. Oh, no. <laughs> you know what I'm referring to? Yes. I, I believe, was it at Washington University? Yes, that was at UW. And you had just come off of, it seemed like one of your first big indoor races of the year. You had just won the mile over your teammate, um, I believe over a teammate of yours. and and a bunch of studs from around the nation, all big names, Georgetown, et cetera, like that. And you're being interviewed. You just cut a ton of time off your mile PR. You'd run 406 and promptly been disqualified. So <laughs> did you ever run faster than that? Or is your official PR not officially recognized? Um, I would say 
the the 406 uh, UW was not my my best race. The I I consider my PR to be the conference championship at NAU in 2012, where I ran 414 at 7,000. Yeah, that's oh. not bad. Uh, what does the NCAA uh, calculator convert that to at sea level? That is a 405. 405. Wow. I'm, I'm going to take that. There was a 359 guy behind me. Jordan, Jordan Chip and Gama was a 359. That was, that, was the, that was one of the few times that I did beat him in a race. I'm curious. What is that like going to race like a really intense race like that at elevation, knowing that it's going to be a bit of a suffer fest? Was that just like, cause especially cause time is all that matters in collegiate track. Like that is all that matters. Is that, it just feel like sacrificial races when you race at elevation like that? Or did, I don't know, did the mindset change when it came down to something like that? Oh, not at all. I mean, we were, we were right in our wheelhouse at 7,000 feet and time doesn't always matter. Uh, it's uh, at a, at a championship, time doesn't matter at all. It's about true finish. Um, and we actually get altitude conversions at, uh, at 7,000 feet. So you're, uh, that counts toward the, the qualifying races. And I remember, uh, I remember talking to Diego Estrada in the, the weight room one time before he and I were about to go, go after the school record in the mile, uh, which is held by Lopez Lemong. And uh, we were just discussing our strategy. I was, I was going to pace Diego through three laps of, uh, of uh, a record attempt. And we had, we had this, uh, this bright-eyed, bushy-tailed freshman just kind of saunter over to us and ask us, uh, who else is coming up? And we just look at him like it was an absurd, like an absurd question, and and just said it doesn't matter. They're they're like it's such an advantage for guys training at altitude to race at altitude that it's it's unfair. Like, um, yeah, Diego Diego ended up running a three fifty converted. There's just there are not many people three three fifty maybe it's three fifty five three fifty five at seven thousand feet. So yeah, four oh four. 404 mile goes to 355. Wow, that's a big difference. That really is. Doesn't sound like a lot. It's a ton. Uh, yeah, it, it bothers a lot of people. Um, I, I don't think I raced great at altitude. I definitely needed the conversion. I, I think it was accurate for me. Some people will argue that uh, you don't, you're not really entitled to that conversion if you live at altitude. But that I'll, I'll tell you, you need that nine seconds. It's, uh, well, the great news is that all that conversion gets you is the opportunity to race at sea level against the sea level athletes. It's not like you win the national championship off your conversion. You win it by showing up and proving that time at sea level. Right. And I mean, we could, it's, it, it translates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So not to spend too much time on it, but I'm curious what you did to get DQ'd in that indoor mile that ruined your, your mile PR. Um, okay. So somewhere there, there's a tape of it, but I, uh, I drifted, so I was, uh, I took the lead at 800 meters and I held it through the last two laps. Uh, but there was a guy coming around my outside on the final stretch and I started drifting out and they said that I impeded his progress, which I did. (laughs) (laughs) What lane did you finish in? Might have been lane four. Maybe. <laughs> Whoops. I'm not defending this. Don't do that. Uh, you know, when it, I was like borderline delirious at the time. Uh, yeah, I, I, 
I can't, uh, I can't really defend that. This is a stupid That's race brain. We'll chalk it up as race brain. If you take over at 800 and you push to the finish at 40, well, I'm sure you negative split. So at four minute pace, yeah, you're going to get some race brain. Yeah, you're, you're not thinking straight at that point. Hey, John, I wanted to ask just one question since you lived and trained at altitude and then would go down to sea level and race. Um, I live at sea level. I always have Bracken for the most part of your life you have. Would it? Would you almost be guaranteed feeling well in a race when you went from elevation down to sea level? Like you knew you would go down and feel good and it would be a good day? Or was it still the ups and downs of racing even, even so? There are still going to be ups and downs in, in racing. Uh, and... Does training at altitude make a difference uh, when racing at sea level? Yes, absolutely. It makes a huge difference. The caveat is that you don't necessarily get that benefit uh, quickly. It takes months, uh, sometimes years. For me, it really took about three years until I was comfortable training and Wow. So you tell me the two weeks I spent in elevation before Tahoe this year wasn't enough? Is that what you're telling me? Unfortunately, that's the case, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, I know. Yeah. That's funny. It probably didn't help you a lot. Yeah. Did you ever suffer from feeling overly sluggish when you came down from altitude for your first few days? No. Uh, coming down the mountain was never an issue. And I had good leg speed. I was I was a like I was an 800 meter runner. So like coming down to, yeah, for, for longer distance, it just wasn't, uh, I'll tell you that going back up to altitude after spending extended time at sea level is a real problem. And <laughs> I could I attest to that. that. Boy, that just killed me at Tahoe in 2018. That was, uh, <laughs> I, there was no way around that. Um, I, Ideally, I would have been able to stay at altitude throughout the the summer up to September, but I, I had to be I had to be back in New York for uh, for obligations there. So even after training at at all, even after training at altitude all summer, going back to sea level for six weeks just destroyed all that. Back. <laughs> it was, it, that was kind of a junk show. So we, we've we've arrived now post collegiately. Are there any other things about your college life you want to touch upon? Because I know you ran 8.58 in a steeple, which is flying. You ran at D1 Nationals. And I believe, did you take 178th there? I I think it was 180th or so. 180th. So like you you ran at top level. Sub 9 in steeplechase is moving. What, what, what were, if you had to look back, what were your highlights of your college career besides that day that you received your jersey? I would say the, the, the indoor conference championship at NAU uh in my fifth year was just a magical experience everybody on the team showed up at the same time and we we blew out the competition on that day so badly that 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 scoring record will never be will never be like every every person who ran averaged like 10.5 and you get 10 <laughs> uh we are we put four guys in the mile and went one through that was that's crazy that was a special that's that's one of those days that like winning a conference title or placing is huge, but turning around and having your teammates right behind you, that's magical. Right. I, I mean, I, I knew Diego was, uh, was a step in front of me. Um, and I, I crossed the line with, with the, with the best performance of my career on my last mile. 
uh, at home senior year. But I didn't really celebrate until I turned turned around and saw Jordan and our freshman Chris Gannam in third. That that's when I threw up my. I don't know if I've ever had a more painful experience than an indoor mile. Kind of always felt like someone had poured kerosene down my nose through the back of my throat and lit it. That's that's the way I feel after an indoor mile. Were you able to handle that a little better, or was it just even worse at altitude? It depends on how you race it. So if uh, if you go out too hard at altitude, you're going to pay for it. I've never finished a race at altitude and said I went out too not one. Yeah. Uh, so I was I was a fan of negative splits in in racing. Yeah. And so you can you can avoid the head that agony a little bit by going um but yeah mid-distance events are painful i I think the 800 was the the is the most painful event out there you know you if you get to the 600 mark in an 800 and you're wondering whether you finish it you're doing something right (laughs) you can attest to that can't you bracken oh yeah oh yeah no i i looked up all, all john's PRs were out of, out of reach. And I thought maybe I was a quicker eight guy than him, but I looked up. He was quicker than me as well, Kirk. <laughs> Shoot, you got nothing on him. Nothing, nothing. Because I, I I guess I never realized you were an 800 meter runner. I thought you were, you had dipped down to the mile, but you were a cross guy and a steeplechase guy. I didn't realize your speed extended all the way down very well to the 800. I actually moved up to the <laughs> That's impressive. So John, so after collegiate eligibility all wrapped up, what, what happened with your running then? What what was the progression there? So first off, I met a guy in Flagstaff named Ben Hahn, and he and I uh, were fast friends, and we were both recent graduates and wanted to take our running to the next level. And we also had strong uh, environmental activist inclinations. And so what, what we wanted to do was create this, like, environmentally sustainable uh, post-collegiate distance running. Okay. And, uh, and so we did. We, we moved up to Mancus, Colorado, uh, which is close to Durango at 8,000. And we lived on this little organic farm in Colorado. And uh, the idea was to, to get a big group of guys out there and just train like animals in the mountain and work on the organic farm and grow our own food and just have a big time. That didn't really work out. We uh, we had this extensive interview process, and there was a lot of excitement about it. And we picked our, our seven guys, and then one by one, they all dropped out. And then <laughs> Ben wasn't really like fired up to train, so it ended up just being me and Ben's like Ben, his girlfriend, and me living in this small house, and only I was training. Uh, so it just it didn't quite come together. Uh, so then I, I turned up in Flagstaff and I went to massage therapy school. I, so, uh, yeah, I just kind of, uh, I continued training for trail running, actually. Uh, that was my main focus. Okay. I, uh, I did a few trail runs. Uh, it went, it went decently well. I, again, I, I was, I was not good with sorting out my nutrition. I was, uh, I didn't really race enough to uh, to get that down to a science. Um, but you know, I, I think I took fourth at the U.S. 50K Championships one year. Okay, that's a big deal. Where was that? That was in uh, Las Vegas in 2013. Okay. 
uh, bootlegger 50k, I think it was. I, I was fired up for for trail running at the time, and uh, I was uh, I was actually looking at jumping on the same circuit that Wamsley independently was was looking at going to. We were both we were both uh, supposed to race at this this particular trail race in Montana. We both had it on our schedule. He ended up winning it, and I discovered Spartan Race. Uh, and so uh, I, I drifted in that direction, and you know Jim started uh, cleaning up the the trail running circuit at the same time, and then I was uh, yeah I got into obstacle racing after that. Well, we uh, you know I would say the the majority uh, I'm gonna say the majority of our listen listeners are probably obstacle course race athletes, um, and so we definitely wanted to get in into that. And you were actually one of the guys that I first kind of had followed in the sport because of them highlighting, I believe it was your Montana race and your epic comeback after falling off the monkey bars and you had graduated from school like the day before. And it was like this really cool coming together. And so I had been curious about you since the beginning. I found the sport in 2016. Um, what uh, what led you to your first Spartan race, John? Okay, so I was, uh, I was driving to the trailhead of a long run with uh, one of my training partners at the time. And he started telling me about this character who was running his mouth about running a two hour marathon. And, you know, he was doing some weird stuff with a weight vest. And uh, I, I just started looking into it. And, um, and I saw that uh, these, these obstacle races are putting up these huge prize purses. And if you're like, if you're a distance runner trying to make ends meet on on the racing circuit, your prospects are bleak. It's like that's that's a hard way to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, I, I finished fourth at the, the U.S. Cross Country Championships, and I won a handshake. <laughs> <laughs> I think third place paid about a hundred dollars. Uh, the most I ever, the most prize money I ever won in a running ring dollar. So. Uh, you know, I, I, I look into uh, uh, these obstacle races and I see some of these $2,000 prize purses. I'm like, okay, well, I'll try that. And, uh, and so I did. I, I did my research on uh, the, the people who were uh, at the top of the sport at the time. And I made a, a calculated decision based on what I was seeing. And I, I thought, I can do this. You know, we've, we've got this... Uh, it's like we had this overweight male model, uh, you know, running eight miles a week in Manhattan and teaching Pilates courses. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe it was spin classes. That's actually worse <laughs> training perspective. Um, and so I'm just licking my chops, looking at like what these other guys are doing because nobody seemed to be training specifically for obstacle rate. And so, you know, I, like, again, I just had that, that mentality of, Okay, I can do this better. I can figure this out, and uh, and so I I went out and did it. Um, and so, like, to to be fair, Hunter and I are now very good friends, and uh, he he has he has matured a, a huge amount as as an athlete. Uh, he's he's changed his training around completely, and now he's just forced to be. But you know, at 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 that time in in late 2013, uh, the sport was was not very well developed. Uh, from what I was seeing, there were, you know, people were kind of all over the place. Uh, there weren't a lot of guys who were really training in the mountains. Uh, they, there was this, uh, 
this over overriding uh, sense at the time that there was, uh, you know, you could just obstacle racing was fair game for anyone, and there were there were a hundred different ways you could train for it, uh, none better than the other. Uh, but that's that's just not the case. So let's let's just talk about a general training principle called specificity. Yeah, let's get into it. Uh, you, you know, I'll I'll go back to Lydiard again because I mean he he is uh, he was my mentor. And you know, Lydiard said the best exercise for runners is running. That's just kind of obviously true. Uh, you don't get good at running by swimming. You don't get good at running by uh, by playing tennis. You have to run. And it, the the same goes for any athletic. And there's this widespread myth around there of uh, abounding about general fitness. Uh, people think somehow that there, there's like this general fitness you can develop, which will make you good at everything. And it doesn't work that way. If like, you have to, you have to break down obstacle racing and think about what this sport is. So like obstacle racing is 80 to 90% running with, uh, carries that's, that's about it. So if, and if we look at the top obstacle racers now, they are, they are world-class mountain runners uh, who participate in rock climbing to some extent and occasionally train with us. And that's, that's the way to do it. Really, the, the first guy who had this down was Cody Moat. And, I mean, he was, he was the, the real threat for me in 2014. And he was, uh, like, I, I reserve my highest respect for Cody Moat to this. He, uh, he was training in the mountains uh, with, uh, and just doing it right. Uh, from the get-go, like the guy was working full time and training before light for two hours each morning before he went to school and then went home to his four kids. Like that's that's what you have to do. So, like when you're when you're training for obstacle race, uh, there you really want to avoid some of these these pitfalls like CrossFit and cycling. Uh, if you're if you're a stadium racer, that's a little different. You can get away with some CrossFit, but if you're if you're racing any any longer than that, I would avoid it like a vampire avoids garlic, uh, because it's going to detract from the quality of workouts that you can get, which will specifically prepare you for what you're. Cycling is even worse, and I I still see a lot of people, even at the pro level, who are incorporating cycling workouts into their training regimen. And this makes no sense. Cycling makes runners slower, period. If cycling made runners faster, then uh, collegiate distance coaches, professional distance coaches would be incorporating this in their, their program. Zero of them do. It just, it doesn't work. Any of the, the guys at NAU who, who went on to be pro triathletes got slower at running. And like, I love cycling. Don't get me wrong. Like I've there's a, it doesn't get any better for, for me than just to, to get out in the mountains with a bike and have a big, but I understand that I'm not training for, for running or obstacle racing when I'm, um, it's uh, like, there's, there's kind of a, a, a pseudo scientific argument like, well, your hips are in deep flexion and that's, that's very similar to hill climbing. So it should help you. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, if you, if you, yeah, if you really want to cross train, like go for go for hiking, go for rock climbing, go for cross country. So you brought this mindset to OCR in a time where there weren't a lot of us that were training specifically for that. Um, just describe what that transition was like. Then you knew on paper what you wanted to do, and then you did your first race. So what was that like? 
Yeah, so the, the first race, um, I came out to Temecula, California in 2014. And sure enough, it was Hunter and Hobie on the starting line with me. And I figured, well, I'm just going to hang back in, uh, and just, this is, this is just a reconnaissance mission because there's, there's a small prize purse on this one. So that's what I did. I just, uh, I ran with Hunter for the first four miles and I just watched and, uh, you know, four miles in, I'm, I'm feeling good. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we go up to the, the Herc hoist and, uh, and Hunter just makes short work of it. Uh, and I, I grab the rope and I start climbing it, uh, because I wasn't, heavy, I wasn't heavy enough to pull the bucket down. And so I'm, 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 uh, I'm just standing on the, I, I have both feet on the gate and I'm hanging on the, the hercoist and I start panicking and I turn to the, the, the ref and I say, I'm not heavy enough. What do I do? And he just shrugs and says, sorry. <laughs> you know, so I, I did that and then, you know, Hunter, um, so I, I figured, I figured out the, the Hercules after that. Once I got the technique where you wrap your legs in, I never had trouble with it after that. Um, but that was a great learning experience. Uh, you, you can, ex if you are new to obstacle racing or you're thinking about starting your first obstacle race, just understand that it's not going to go well for your first time. Um, but it was, it was worth it. I, I learned a lot and then I came out in Arizona and things went a lot better. Mm -hmm. So you went on tear there in 2014, you had one of the best stretches that anyone in the sport has put together. I think you won something like six or seven consecutive races, uh, over the who's who of the sport. And that, that's when I met you, I met you at that, uh, Miami race. I thought I was going to be the only person showing up. And then you ran by in my warm up. And I, uh, I went over to the car and I called Lisa. I said, Yatsko showed up. <laughs> you know, shoot. So like that was my introduction to you. But then you beat me. So Well, I don't think I beat you. I think you missed a spear. That counts. It does. But we both knew that day who the better athlete was. And then you went on the rest of the season to prove it. But that, that was your last loss that year until World Championships. You tore off like six or seven straight wins against everyone in the sport. And suddenly there was like that new player in town that everyone's like, shoot, there's this guy who's a D1 runner. He's really thin, but he's like this bouncy, fluid, really fast runner. He's surprisingly good on carries. He's not failing obstacles anymore. Like we're in trouble. Well, I was, uh, I was definitely feeling good in 2014. Um, I think uh, what really derailed me was the the length of the season and the number of races that I attempted. I think I raced seven times that season, including a few trail races, a few longer trail races. And that was, that was too much. I think uh, a big mistake that I made that season was that I, I wanted, I wanted to be at the top of the, at the top of the sport as early as, as soon as possible. And looking back there, that was, really just a rookie mistake. Uh, there is no reason to be in that good of shape that early. So if we, you know, if we look at the, the last six years of, of these Spartan world championships, there's a consistent trend. The guy who is on top of the sport in the early season does not win the world championship. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, it's always, it's always another guy who swoops in fresh as a breeze and snatches the title. So, I, uh, 
yeah, there's uh, there's really there's really a skill to peaking at the right time, especially when you have a season as long as the Spartans. So here's here's another uh, you know pro tip if uh, for anyone who's interested, uh, be careful with overtraining. I think people people across the board training for aerobic sports, uh, running in particular, obstacle racing included, tend to overtrain. And I think that comes from this, uh, this mentality of like no pain, no gain. I'm going to train the hardest, you know, I'll, I'll train hard, race easy. That's, that's really not what you want to do. You actually want to train easy, race hard. Yeah. I, I remember it, it took me a while to sort, to sort this out at NAU. It wasn't until my fifth year that I really had the discipline to not overtrain. Like training hard is easy, especially if you're a runner, you can only train so much. Right, you can only you can realistically only do about two hours a day consistent. Uh, the body just can't handle much. So the the discipline comes from knowing when to keep a lid. I remember at NAU uh, we had three seasons back to back: cross country, indoor, outdoor track, which was eight months. And so I I remember the first workout uh, senior year, like in my fifth year at NAU. We do this two-mile workout, two-mile repeat workout at uh, at Buffalo Park, and a lot of the young guys uh, really come at it with something to prove, and you know they'll they'll burn through the first mile in five minutes flat. At I was just I remember in that workout I was just sitting 15 seconds off the back of the pack, looking at my watch, going through 5:20, thinking I'm good. Y'all have fun, boys, uh, and. You know, they just, they cook each other. And if you race workouts consistently, you're going to burn out. Um, and so I just, I didn't try to beat my workouts. I just completed my workouts uh, at the, at my target paces. And we did the same workout at the end of track season. And I was well off the f- because everybody else had blown up. And I, I basically, uh, I was, I was like those, those uh, rookie collegiate athletes in, in 2014 as well. I came out guns blazing early part of the year and just didn't have the, the ammunition. So you arrived to world championships that year, overcooked, and you took fourth place. And that would be that 2014 year in Killington, which I think a lot of people would argue was probably the most physically arduous championship in our sports history. And you took fourth behind Albin, Atkins, and Cody, I believe, correct? So you took fourth against three of maybe not in order, but three of the greatest athletes our sport has ever seen. What would you have done differently? And what do you think that result would have been had you not overcooked early on? Yeah, I'll, I'll give it to those guys. Those are all top tier, uh, incredible athletes. Um, that was an honest licking. Um, if, if I had, what would I have done differently? Well, I would have trained downhills uh, harder at that point. That was a lesson that I learned from 24. Um, and after 2014, I actually did get substantially better at downhill, uh, but that was a weakness. And I've, I've already mentioned that peaking too early was a problem. I, I would have done more heavy carry. I was, I think my sandbag at the time was 40 or 50 pounds, and that did not prepare me for the double sandbag carry at Killington up that black dot. Yeah. I think, uh... People tend to neglect carries, but you can get you can save a lot of time in an obstacle race by training carries specifically. 
How do you like to do that? Uh, so how, I won't dodge your question. Uh, if I if I had done everything right, how would that have changed things? It's hard to say. I think uh, Alvin and Atkins were so good at the time. I'm not sure I could have closed that gap. Uh, I yeah, it it would have been close. So how do you like to incorporate sandbag carries or heavy carries into your running? Do you do it as standalone workouts or you do it in amongst a hill session? Standalone workout. Yeah. And I've I've already talked to you uh, privately about. Uh, my favorite workout was I, I call the dog loop. And this is my bread and butter for training for obstacle racing. And this is this is one of my magic bullet workouts for Hear that Kirk, the dog loop. I'm very familiar with the dog loop, thanks to you, John. <laughs> you didn't know that, but thank you. Yeah. Okay. I want to hear about Good. it. So for people who are not familiar with the dog loop, what you need to do is find a loop uh, about a mile long shorter in the beginning and find two or three uh, carrying implements. One of them should be a sandbag, maybe the other's a bucket, maybe it's a log, maybe it's a, a couple of kettlebells, farmer's carry or something, whatever you got. And uh, let's, for simplicity, let's just say you have a sandbag and a farmer's carry. So at the start of the loop, take the farmer's carry and get it as far as you can and then Without pause, turn around and run back to the sandbag at tempo pick. Pick up the sandbag and then uh, drop the sandbag at the, the the farmer's carry. Pick up the farmer's carry and repeat. And do that all the way around the loop so that you end up, if your loop is a mile long, you end up with a mile of farmer's carry, a mile of sandbag, and then you've run backward. And I found that that was extremely effective at training me to uh, to carry and run, which is the most important uh, aspect of ops. And if you can do that on in steep terrain, even better. Where did the name dog loop come from? Why dog loop versus carry loop or something similar? No, it's 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 the dog loop. And the, uh, <laughs> I came up with that name when I was riding my bicycle through Alaska and as I was uh, as I was riding through Ninana, Alaska, which is a little south of Fairbanks, I was sitting on the, the side of a grocery store eating an orange, and and this character uh, Jesse Holmes uh, pulls up in in his old truck with a, a hand built wooden dog kennel on the back of it, and this guy like shambles into the grocery store, and I'm I'm just watching this creature and like wondering what his life is like. And, uh, you know, he comes out and I start talking to him and it turns out that he was actually a, a trail runner as well. And so, uh, he, uh, Jesse, Jesse dropped out of high school, like was, went to prison or something. I got, uh, got his skull bashed in while he was in prison. And as soon as he got out, he hitchhiked to, uh, to Alaska. No, he didn't hitchhike. He rode the rails to a to Alaska. Uh, and just uh, started um, living in the shack by the river, uh, training Iditarod sled dogs. And uh, and so I Jesse invited me back to his shack, and I was like, all right, that sounds like good. And so I I followed Jesse back to the shack, and uh, and so we uh, I stayed there for about three weeks, and we uh, we did a lot of training, looked after some Alaskan huskies, and. I uh, worked on the river. Yeah, it, was, it was just a great experience. Um, but while I was there, uh, Jesse and I would 
uh, would do some, some carry workouts. There were these old railroad ties that were, were left over, who knows what. And, you know, you're really not supposed to mess with railroad ties because they have chemicals in them, but we did it. So we, uh, we had our primitive implements and there was a three quarter mile loop around Jesse's dog yard. Uh, and that's what we did this workout on. So it just became the dog loop. Well, I've been prescribing that workout for the last seven years, John. I like that workout. <laughs> and it's called the John Yatsko Dog Loop. And so your legend carries on. Wonderful. Don't you think John should get some royalties, Bracken? Probably should. <laughs> That's all right. John, there's one other workout you had talked to me about. And Kirk, you and I have never discussed this one. John, tell us about the murder run. Murder March. Murder March. Sorry, Murder March. Yeah, I got this one from Hunter, actually. So I'll, I'll give credit where credit's due on this uh, so if you have uh, another person to work out with, then find a, a heavy sandbag, ideally one of those big sausage bags or, or one of those 50-pound pancakes, and go find a mountain and carry the sandbag up the mountain, trading it off with your partner the whole way. It's, that's it. Pretty straightforward. What is your partner doing well, you're carrying the sandbag. Just hiking alongside you. And so you carry it as long as you can. And then you, you hand off to your partner. And then the partner goes. I assume at a, an aggressive pace with the sandbag. This is a painful workout. Um, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't have to be that painful. It's, uh, you're really just going for volume on this. Because you might end up hiking three or four miles. So uh, I actually kind of liked it. You know, there there's not too often in, in training where you just get to hike through the mountain feel bad. It's also not too often in nature you see Hunter McIntyre and John Yatsko trading a sandbag back and forth, hiking up a mountain together. Oh, man. So, yeah, Hunter and I actually trained together in Colorado for, for a summer. And, boy, that was an experience. Um, yeah, so I, I rode – I continued riding my bike from Alaska down to Durango, Colorado, and – when I got to Durango, Hunter just happened to have a cabin there. And he's like, dude, you should come train with us. And I was like, all right. Uh, so I, uh, I stayed in, the, in this cabin with, with Hunter, uh, Ryan, uh, no, Matt Kempson, and Ryan Kent. And so we, uh, we had this little training camp for that summer. But boy, Hunter and I would butt heads. Um, it was just a barn burner. And... You know, going back to this idea of overtraining, uh, I actually prefer to have a training partner who is slower than me. You know, the the conventional wisdom might be that you want somebody who's going to push you in workouts, but I don't actually. I, I don't want the temptation to to overtrain. And and with Hunter, it's like we're as, as soon as you go out the door, you know we're going hard. Whether it's an easy run or a bike ride or a hill repeat. A hill rep session, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be bad. Somebody's like we're just gonna go hard until one guy breaks. And like Hunter and I are so close in ability that we can really. So you know there was there was one workout in particular I remember. We rode our bikes thirty minutes to the base of this mountain and ran three thousand feet up the mountain. Uh, came back down to the bikes and as we were riding back into town along the Animas River, uh, this peloton of cyclists comes by us and hunter was a little bit ahead of me at the time and so i just tucked into the back of the peloton and just 
gave him a good slap on the hind corners as I was uh, as I was riding by. And a hunter's like a bull, you know. When he gets fired up, there's just no stopping. And so the uh, the next thing he I see is is hunter swing wide around the peloton and just go woo, and he just attacks. <laughs> and uh, you know I. I, I felt like he and I just walked into a biker bar and Hunter just took a swing at the biggest hell's angel. And I'm just standing there with my beer. Like, uh, so, you know, I, I tucked in behind Hunter and uh, we, we both attacked on this Peloton and we got out a, a solid hundred meters ahead of him. We were looking back giggling cause we were riding our like uh, terrible cheap bikes and we had running shoes strapped to the back of them. And so, you know, naturally these cyclists were having none of it. So they, uh, they, the lead guys broke off into this, uh, this single file pace line and just rolled up. And uh, the whole peloton just broke form and started racing back in Durango with Hunter and me. Uh, it was like we set off a, a hornet's nest. And, uh, and so it was just a, a flat out battle all the way back in Durango. And uh, I, was, I was just not happy. <laughs> but you wouldn't have that story either, would you? If it wasn't for Hunter hammering all the time, huh? Uh, he was, uh, yeah, he's a trip. No, uh, no shortage of enthusiasm. Um, um, speaking of Hunter, something that you had kind of mentioned, cause you got a high level running pedigree and you said you were looking at our sport from the outside, looking in and said there was this crazy guy who runs in a weight vest. And then there was this playboy who taught spin class. When you looked at our sport before you joined it, did you think you were going to come in and just roll and everybody was a joke? Or did you have some respect going in or was that respect learned along the way? I'm just curious about that transition. Um, I mean, there was, there was a mix. Uh, it's like when, when you launch into any like, new endeavor, whether it be you know, trying to, to be, make your way to the top of the sport or, you know, launching into a new business endeavor, I mean, you want to have some, some sense of whether you're going to be able to, to make it. And so I, like I said, I did my reconnaissance. Mm -hmm. I, I saw what some of the guys are doing. I said, okay, I can, I can do that better. This guy's not going to be a problem. I can beat him. The, uh, yeah, Cody was, was the real concern um, because Cody and I had identical 5k PRs. He was the U S 50 mile champion. Not too long before that. Uh, the guy was strong. He can run uphills. He can run downhills. He can carry. Uh, the guy just—I mean, his his only weakness was uh, was that he just failed obstacle. And uh, and so yeah, when you get on the the starting line with Cody Moat, you're just uh, you're just quietly hoping that he does some burpees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's really the only way he lost for like four years was if he did burpees. I mean, I at my best, I was I could match him. I I, I think. Uh, in Utah in the summer of 2014, I was, you know, a little faster, but then like being the, the mature like, old pro that he was, he peaked at the right time and then my butt at work. That's, that, yeah. that's the way to do it. But you beat him straight up in a, was that a super a beast in Utah? I was a beast in Utah. Yeah. And, that, and there are very few people on this planet who have beat Cody Moten a beast. Um, I didn't know about Ryan Atkins or John Alvin. The first time I ever saw them was Killington. You know, the first time I saw Ryan Atkins was very similar to the first time I saw you. First time I saw him was the night before that 2014 World Championship. And he walked up to the athlete briefing and there's a press conference and everyone's wearing their sponsored gear or their running clothes. And he had like a t-shirt on or a long sleeve shirt. He had baggy sweatpants rolled up to his knees and he was wearing flip flops. 
and he just kind of sauntered in, like looked around, smiled at people and sat down like as casual as if he had just stepped onto his back porch. And I thought, I don't know who this guy is. <laughs> he's either an idiot or he absolutely has supreme confidence in what he's about to do. And that's kind of how I looked at you the first time I saw you at a race. Like you were extremely self-composed and kind of serene in what you're about to do. Like thought either this guy is this skinny distance runner who has no clue what he's about to get into, or I'm in for a long day today. You guys had that same appearance about you. Yeah, I was really hoping Ryan Atkins was an idiot. I saw him take and uh, I, I didn't chase him. I, I didn't want to, uh, because the previous year, everybody had just fallen apart. It was a total junk show in Killington in 2013. So I figured, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pace this right and just, uh, you know, continue trotting up this hill. And like Atkins charging up that thing. Uh, and uh, it wasn't until uh, three or four miles in the race uh, that it kind of dawned on me like, okay, this, these two guys are apparently pretty legit. They're good. John, you uh, did going back to 2014. I think that's the season you said you raced a ton. Is that still the most you've raced in a single season, 2014? As far as Spartan goes, oh, by far, yes. And and if I'm not mistaken, you know, again, I only came to the sport in 2016, but you have raced. You haven't missed a year of racing. You've jumped in one or two every year, haven't you? Mm, I suppose not. Uh, 20. I'll. Uh... Yeah, I haven't I haven't raced since Jacksonville 2019. Over a year. Right. Um, have you I know you were, you know, more doing more series races years ago and and all of that. Have you started to flirt with the idea of of racing more again or are you jumping into races that excite you and that's the plan or how are you looking at your racing um, in current day? You know, at the at the present moment, I'm not training for anything in particular. Uh, I still usually work out at least once a day. Um, you know, usually that it's it's nothing nothing too serious. I'll I'll get up at first light and go for a run, something I've done for many years. Um, but that's just my baseline, right? I mean, if it's just, just like brushing my teeth, I get up and I go for a run. Now there was a time where if they would have announced. Uh, Abu Dhabi sand-based world championship that I would have placed you and Hobie, <clears throat> you and Hobie as the two clear favorites to win that style of race. Does that hold any temptation to you? Is there any draw there? You know, if I if I feel like I'm rounding into decent shape and I'm excited about a particular race, I might jump in again, but I I'm not going to commit myself to anything. Is that a lack of desire to put in the work that you know that you would do and need to do to be the racer you want to be? Or is it just that you have other things pulling you in other directions? I think it would be a cop-out to say that I don't have the time to to put into the sport to be at the top. Uh, really, that that excuse just doesn't hold water. And we've we've talked about this before. And I think you you put it very eloquently when you said, if you don't have the discipline to train when you're working full time, then you won't have the discipline to to train when that's the only thing. And if we if we look at like I've never been a, a full time. Neither has Cody Mode, right? We've always worked, right? Uh, you know, Rebecca Hammond was a full time medical student at Harvard for uh, for her best to go right and. And still, just made that meteoric uh, push. 
push to the you know the silver medal at, at Worlds uh, while running while running four days a week during medicals. It's it's possible, right? So it's a uh, and you know distance running or obstacle racing. Uh, as well, are sports where you can lace them in around your your everyday life. You can make that work. Uh, you can only train so much for these sports, right? It's like if you're a competitive cyclist or, uh, or a competitive figure skater, you have to train six hours a day or you're not going to make it. Obstacle racing is not like that. With obstacle racing, if you can train two hours a day consistently, you're in an extremely small minority, and that's enough. Um, that's that's all Cody Moe ever did. That's uh, that's all I ever did consistently. And yeah, I I think it's possible if uh, if I so desired, I could. I think I could come back and do well. I think there's some people that would like to see it. You're still, you know, part of the conversation, believe it or not, John. Just especially with all these Spartan rewinds that have been playing, and you've been the highlight feature. Um, your name has come up more often than not recently. I don't know if you've seen those pop up. I know you don't go on social media a lot. Have you Have you gone back and watched any of those broadcasts? Uh, I don't even know where you find them, do you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, the internet, all the places, really. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I generally prefer to just look forward. Yeah. Well, since the whole sport is looking backwards right now, they're looking firmly at your face. You had that 2014 stretch in 2015 where you're on a lot of those, the top of the, at the time, the NBC podiums. And so you, your name is at the forefront of the sport once again, like it or not. All right. That's, that's all right. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's fine. <laughs> I, mean, I, was never, I was never particularly concerned about what people on the internet are saying. So that's that's, yeah. that's not going to affect me either. I don't have such a thing as a favorite John Yatsko story, but one that I really appreciate is when Spartan and NBC were trying to sign you and get a hold of you. Nobody could find you. Like Generally, the process is somebody does well at a race and Spartan can't keep them from like emailing them and calling them or like they won't stay out of the official's tent afterwards. Spartan literally could not track down a working number to find you, and they didn't know where you were. The rumor is you were just somewhere off in the woods in Arizona, and nobody knew. I love that. Like, you had a sponsorship waiting. You had NBC really wanting to interview you and feature you, and you were nowhere to be found because it didn't matter to you. Yeah, I, I didn't own a cell phone. And I remember when I was in Killington in 2014, uh, you know, they had us do those uh, the, the NBC guys just couldn't find me and they were, they were asking Rose and Tim, uh, how to get a hold of me. And, and Rose just, uh, told the NBC guy, look, just go out to the woods and, and call John's name and maybe he'll just come out. And, <laughs> and it just so happened that, that, that NBC guy did exactly that. And he, he just walked out of the building in frustration and and uh, started calling to one of his uh, his associates like does anyone does anyone know where John Yasko is? And I just happened to be down at the lake at the time under the trees. And I was like, I'm down here. <laughs> and I, I came in and gave him their interview. Um, but I yeah I I really don't like social media. I don't I don't engage with technology any more than necessary. I, I find that it's a distraction. And it really changes my mindset, I found. 
And for the brief period that I did have social media while I was competing, I, I just didn't like it. You know, I, I didn't want to go out on my runs thinking about how I could document the experience or uh, come up with witty things to say on social media. Because I'm really distracted with my experience communing with nature and just having this relaxing break in my day to go out for my run. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to waste my time with this stuff and like taint the purity of the experience with all this. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to sell people things really that they didn't need. I declined all sponsorship offers. Um, so I didn't, just didn't want that, that pressure and that obligation. John, this, this leads me to a question that I want to, I'm, I'm very curious about. And, and it's a simple question, but I want to preface it. You know, the question is like, what, what motivates you? What drives you to push forward with your training? And, and just like you mentioned, some people want to train hard so they can get a lucrative sponsorship. And some people like Spartan racing because it's social for them. They can go and spend time with their friends. Some want to brag to their friends or, you know, followers on social media to look cool. You know, those things don't sound like it, it appeals to you. So what, what's, uh, what's your motivator with the whole process? of training and racing? Hard question to answer maybe, but. One thing that I really enjoy about obstacle, obstacle racing that running does not have is that it's a full body sport. And it really keeps me honest and keeps me accountable. And so for me, like I said, I, I always work out. Even when I'm not training for something specifically, I'll I'll continue to keep myself in shape, but it's not the same as when I really have to hold myself accountable uh, to racing in public and standing behind my times and saying, this is the best that I can to, to really, to really do that. Like I need, I need Bracken. I need Brian Atkins. I need Alvin and Killian and Hunter. I need all these guys to push me to that level where I can really get them. And, you know, I just, the, the Spartan races in particular have great venues. I really enjoy them. Um, like I, I don't like mud. I don't like barbed wire, but they're, uh, I don't get into all that, but the, uh, the courses are just amazing. They, they pick the best venues and it's, uh, it's just a pleasure to get out to some of these areas and, and have the kind of mountain race that I wish, uh, like cross country, was. you know, in cross country, you're just, uh, just kind of running along this grass track and this golf course for you know, six or what five or six miles. And that's just dull. That's not cross country. I want to be scaling mountains and swimming across lakes and fording rivers, you know, slogging through bogs. You know, Spartan races are that. So it's uh, it's nice. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I didn't expect this, but I have built a, a small community around obstacle racing. Um, I, it's a, yeah, there's, there's some good people in this. So I know you've kind of like skirted around it, but do you think we'll see you this year? Will I see you at a venue 2020, 2021, or are you just waiting for something to pique your interest? And when that happens, you stroll out of the trees the day, the morning of, and if not, we, we, we just keep waiting. You know, I've, uh, I've never been much for planning, so I really can't. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, yeah, one day I may just turn up out of the trees and we'll have a race. Wasn't there a race, one of the stadium races in New York or something where I believe Bracken, maybe you mentioned this to me and I think I could have the story wrong. It's not my story to tell, but you just talked to John and John said, oh man, I might show up tomorrow morning. I haven't decided yet. Is that an accurate story or something like that? Right. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> I uh, I had no intention of running that uh, that stadium race in New York. Psych, Bracken, psych. I contacted John and I said, hey, I'm coming in for a stadium race in New York City. Like, let's get together this weekend. So John and I went for a run in Central Park. I'd never been to Central Park before. He cooked me dinner. And then uh, the next morning, he showed up at the start line. And John, was that the day it was pouring rain and you biked there as you were running late or whatever you got there, that your warm-up was biking to the venue? You got off your bike, put on your race shoes and towed the line? That happened, yes. <laughs> yeah. You made the podium in a stadium race like that. Yeah, the the stadiums stadium races aren't my cup of tea. That's that's very much your wheelhouse. But it was uh, it was all right. I can I can see how that would that would appeal to to a lot of people. There's no there's no barbed wire and there's no mud, which is wonderful. John, is there a race? What's the most last minute race you've jumped into where you weren't having a plan to do it and then you jumped in? Was it that one or have you been? Uh, equally or more spontaneous with a race before? No, I would say on average, I decide the Thursday before a race whether I'm going to do it. Even one you have to fly to potentially? Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, that's, that's, how that's why he always surprises people because they don't know he's going and he camps in the woods the night before. And literally people realize he's racing when he shows up at the start line. Yeah, I, I don't know when I'm racing, so I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> That's how Montana was in 2015. I was just convinced that I didn't have the training under me and I wasn't wasn't in good enough shape to, to hang. And I I just went out for a, a hill workout on that Thursday before the race and uh, it, it went well. So I'm like, okay, well maybe I'll try. Came out and won. <laughs> that's not the, that's not the most last minute. Like I said, that that was just typical. Uh, there was a there was a time when I I went up. So uh, Kevin Donahue, uh, the guy who calls a lot of these races, um, lived about like a six-hour bike ride north of me in New York. And I used to ride my bike up to his house and just uh, camp on the lake some weekends. So uh, one weekend I, I rode up to Kevin's place and uh, I went for a five-hour long run on the Appalachian Trail uh, on a Thursday before this in Spartan. And I really didn't have any intention of, of running it. Um, my my legs were kind of tired from the bike ride and, and the long run. And so I just figured I'd, I'd, I'd just kind of tag along. And so I uh, I pitched my my little uh, tent, although although tent is kind of an over, it doesn't really capture it. I, I, I don't actually have a tent. It's just clothesline with a tarp strung over the top of it. <laughs> uh, in a little A-frame kind of situation. And if, uh, it can usually keep the rain out, but not always. And so uh, I was just sleeping outside of Kevin's house and there was a rainstorm that night. I got totally soaked. And, you know, I look up and there's a giant spider on me. And I'm like, oh, you know what? All right, so I'm, I don't want to be roommate. Let me just go inside. So, you know, I was like wet and cold and uh, I just... I uh, came into the house at like 2 a.m. and curled up on the rug under Kevin's kitchen table. And, uh, <laughs> and Kevin has a futon, just so we're all on the same page. Um, yeah, but Faye was on it. Oh, gotcha. Uh, you know, there were, I think Faye and Ryan Kempson were, were also down for the and, uh, and so they were taking all the bed space. So, yeah, I just uh, I curled up on this rug under his, uh, under his kitchen table 
And then like three hours later, Faye comes in getting ready for her race. And I was like, okay, well, shoot, I'm up. So I might as well go. And uh, I jumped in there. And? Yeah, and? Um, I ended up getting second behind Ryan Kempson. He, uh, he had a good day. He was, uh, he's very, very agile in a, a really rough terrain. He actually reminds me a little bit of you in his lower leg action. Yeah, he's, he's nimble. Yeah, he is. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe even a, a bit more reckless than I am. Uh, potentially. So speaking of reckless, John, John and I, going back to that New York City race, that stadium race he jumped in, the day before, John and I almost became YouTube sensations. When John and I ran through the park, we were in our split shorts and our running shoes, and we ran past the basketball courts. Do you remember this, John? And there is a group of of rough young youths playing basketball, and they immediately started calling us names as we ran by. Um, not very nice names, solely based on the fact that we were running with our shirts off wearing split shorts. John and I both came to a stop and we looked at each other. And John's played a little basketball in his day. And I've played a little basketball in my day. And we had a brief, what, maybe 10 second discussion. You can dunk a basketball. I've seen you. Yeah. Well, we both knew that this could be an incredible moment <laughs> if we turn around and go back to this court and say, be like, all right, let's play. And just you choose your two and John and I will play you two on two in our split shorts and running shoes. And it would have been a YouTube sensation. Like we, it would have been an incredible moment for skinny runners everywhere. You know, we should, but I was in Hoka's and I just thought if I roll my ankle in these Hoka's playing basketball the day before a race, I'll never forgive myself. And so we, we just kind of like sighed and, Ah, uh, turned away and we went, went on with our run. But John, from time to time, I think back on what could have been that you day. You know, I think we could have rolled them. We would have rolled them right we off the court. We would have taken them to school bad. It would have been like, sometimes you just have to walk away. You do. And and who knows, maybe we walked away from, from infamy that day. Yeah, I mean, next time we're, we're on a run in tiny shorts through Harlem, we'll do it. Yes, we will. <laughs> so... It's it's one of my great regrets in life, John, is that you and I did not <laughs> confront our challengers in in Central Park that day. You just got to do it, um, John. You uh, you're in New York City right now, currently, correct? I uh, no, I I'm actually back in Arizona now. Okay, and what are you what are you doing with your time these days? Are you in Arizona uh, for the foreseeable future, or what are you what are you up to these days? Doing as doing as much as I can to keep busy during the during the pandemic. I'm still teaching online a little bit. You know, nothing to write home about. John won't brag about this. He won't brag about this, but he moved home to help his mom move into a home he just bought for. So I I have a house in Arizona now, uh, and so it's been nice to to come back here. I yeah the uh, I didn't used to like the the heat down in, but. After living in cold climates for what, 13 years, uh, I'm just like, give me the heat. I love it. It's, uh, it's so much better. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. And what did you, what were you, what are you teaching and, and all that? What are you doing that way? I teach math, physics, symbolic logic, structural engineering. Oh, wow. Just the usual gamut. <laughs> yeah. And are you planning to stay in Arizona for a little while or you seem to be a bit nomadic? Well, like I said, I've never been big on planning, so we'll see what <laughs> I I don't anticipate this being a, a permanent You gonna look up Jim now that you're back? I don't think I'm in shape to hang with Jim. Jim's dangerous. Uh yeah, the last time I ran with Jim we went for a mile 
No, I went a lot. Yeah, I went. I went with a. a we went for a twenty-mile run down the Grand Canyon, and I sprained my hip at the bottom and just kind of limped back up. And then uh, I uh, later that summer I went up to uh, went up to his high camp in Silverton, Colorado, and we, we trained up there for a little bit. And, and uh, his a uh, it's like when I get back to training with Jim, I'll just I'll ignore my injuries and just hurt myself. So. Yeah, uh, it's just it's best that I just do my own thing until until I'm I'm in shape to those guys. That makes sense. Now, back a few years ago, we had talked about you wanted to make an assault on the the rim to rim, and we were looking for people that were capable of pacing you well for that. I don't think you have to look much farther anymore. Um, no, yeah, I I really it really would have been uh, ideal to go after that in 2014 before Jim moved to. Uh, my other uh, teammate in NAU, Tim Frericks, I believe, actually has that that single crossing. Interesting. Uh, Jim could certainly get it, but there, uh, that that record has become quite a bit more competitive than it was when we had our last. <laughs> yes, it has. Now, the only other thing remaining on our bucket list together is, of course, uh, um, an endurance hunt. A persistence hunt. Persistence hunt. So maybe the running public has to host a persistence hunt and finally get this thing done. But you are more than welcome to invite Jim. He might be our ace in the hole with running these antelope down. Sure. He does so well with the heat. He can run in the heat better than any human I've ever seen. I was, I was crewing for him at Western States when he broke the record. Uh, and he's just inhuman. It was a, it was, he ran 100 miles in 100 degrees and faster than anyone else, even during the cool year. It's like... It's not human. I've, like, I've run with him in the canyon before, and it'll be 105 down there, and it just doesn't phase him. Uh, he doesn't slow down at all. So, yeah, he would totally be the guy for a pers- Now, uh, after after I saw you in Tahoe, I don't I don't know if we've talked about this, but uh, I was uh, I was riding across the, the desert in Utah, and... It was, it, I think it was like a 100-mile day in 100-degree heat just before I, I met Cody in Fillmore, Utah. And as I was, as I was riding through the, the desert in south, southwest Utah, I saw this antelope, or I think it's, it's technically a pronghorn. I saw this, this, yeah. I saw this pronghorn uh, galloping along the side of the freeway. And I started following it. And, well, I mean, it was just—it was on the freeway. It was on the same road that I was on, but just caught between the the fence and the freeway. And it couldn't get through the fence, and so it was just running ahead of me for about two miles. And I'm on my bike at the time, and just thinking, this is going really well. I can fire this thing out on my bike. You're gonna solo this persistence hunt? Uh, yes. So I. Uh, I got two miles down the, the road and he dipped under the, the fence. He finally found a wash to get under. Uh, like, cause I was, I was shouting at him. Like I wanted to burn this thing out while he was on the freeway before he got out. So I was just flying down the, the road, just hollering at this thing, just egg him on until this thing finds an opening in the fence. And as soon as he did, I just put the bike on my shoulder, ran to the fence, locked it to the, this chain link fence, grabbed my water bottle and a knife and took off after this. I like it. And we were on a salt flat. So the, uh, the thing couldn't, uh, it really couldn't get out of my sight because we were on very flat ground. And, uh, and so I, I chased it for about 40 minutes. 
uh, until it eventually got out of my sight because they they have these uh, they have these eyes that can see 360 degrees. Uh, so they're they're always watching you, and they know they know when they're out of your sight. So what they do is they they just drop into a little crease in the land and then switch directions and bolt. That's what he must have been doing. And so I would lose him, and then I pick up his trail. Uh, I, I picked up his trail twice, uh, but still, one guy alone is is not good enough. One guy can't. No, we we need at least eight or ten. I've watched a couple of documentaries on this. Have you guys watched Persistence yeah. on documentaries? They, from what I know, you're better off picking antlered game and a large male with heavy antlers, which are costly. And those are the ones that will tire out over endurance the quickest because of the extra the extra headgear. And an antelope doesn't have that. So that was an uphill battle. I'd pick like a big elk that's got a big rack and I would just stay on that baby for about 12 no, hours. No, man. It's go big or go home. I want the pronghorn. Eli wants the pronghorn. John and I had planned this out pretty well. We... John has a, a plot of land that he has all picked out. Um, he's researched it. I've I've researched it a bunch. We had a crew. We, we had a hunter was going to help us with it. We had a, we were going to do an OCR persistence hunt, and I still think we're going to. So I don't know if everybody listening knows what this is, but that basically means you find an animal and you chase it until exhaustion to the point in which it basically can no longer get up. It is so exhausted, and then you you harvest it. But it's only on foot, and it's with a knife, and it's chasing an animal. Uh, enduring longer than the animal can, in a sense, yep. the most purest form of, you're, of taking. You're just counting on it dying of heat exhaustion before you use Mm-hmm. And so I started. I started studying uh, wolf hunting techniques, how the packs move, how they cut off their their prey. Like we, we put some we put some legwork into this, and it will happen someday. You really have to track it, and that's an essential mm-hmm. component. It can't just be a bunch of hooligans running after running after this creature and hoping you actually have to have tracking skills because it's going to get out of your I would like to volunteer my outdoorsmanship and endurance background to partake in this event fellas if I can I accept good all right Bracken make sure that 64 week plan of yours works out (laughs) all right well there couldn't be a bigger target on my wall than a persistence hunt so I think that that I am fully on board to rehab and get into this thing. Well, we, we better hurry because if, if Jim's listening, then he's probably going to get it first. So we'll, uh, we'll have to act. Well, I'd, I'd be flattered, but I doubt Jim's listening yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Jim, if you are, we would like to team up and hunt a pronghorn with you. Yeah, get, uh, get all the Coconino Cowboys down. They're the, they're the guys to do it. I'm, I'm surprised. Yes, they are. already. You know, they may have, but they may not have a Yatsko and Kirk and Bracken style planning think tank behind them yet. Yeah, you got to be strict. Yes, you do. So, so John, this is usually the point in the podcast as we wrap things up where we say, is there any sponsors you want to shout out? Where can people find you on social media? But I don't know if those questions really apply to you. No, do don't try to find me. I don't want sponsorships. Don't call me. <laughs> That's what I figured your answer would be. That's what people like about you, John. Uh, but it's been a pleasure talking with you both, and uh, let's do it again sometime. Thanks for coming on, John. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks, Bragan. Have a good one.